Last time in Acts, we saw that although the outlook doesn't look good at times, we should take courage because our eternal forecast as Christians is looking great. We saw that God never intended for humans to be alone. Paul was not alone on that ship. Luke went along on the journey with him, and so did Aristarchus. We saw that life could be dangerous at times. When Paul was on that ship, the violent wind did not let up all night, continued the next day, and the sailors began to throw cargo overboard. Later, when the Euroclyton hit their vessel, they spent many hours in danger. When everyone else around you is giving up hope, you do not give up hope because your suffering is only for a little while. And when you don't give up hope, you can encourage others. Paul told them that not one hair of their heads would be harmed. I heard a story about two heavily intoxicated New Englanders who after leaving the tavern one night in the wee hours, went down to their skiff to return to their homes across the bay. They got in and they began to row. They struggled rowing the rest of the night, wondering why it was taking so long for them to get to the other side. When the sky began to become light and they became more sober, they discovered that their mooring line had never been loosed and their anchor had never been raised. Can you imagine that? Rowing all night only to find out you never raised your anchor. That's exactly what stops some people from becoming Christians. They cannot believe because they're tied to this world. They need to cut the cord and set themselves free from the clogging weight of earthly things. And then they will see the right path and be on their way toward heaven. Well, Luke continues to tell us about Paul's adventures on this trip. And after they survive the night, they too have some cords to release. Just like people need to cut cords in this world to get to heaven, these sailors must loose themselves to get to a safer place. We're in Acts 27, and we will start in verse 39, Acts 27 and 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea, meanwhile loosing the rudder's ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. As day broke, it became very clear why Paul had said the sailors needed to stay on board. Although they did not recognize the land that was nearby, they did know how to guide the ship toward the bay and the beach, which they could see. Without their skilled hands, all could have been lost. It is then they had to let go of the anchors, loose the rudder's ropes, and hoist the mainsail. These ancient vessels had dual steering oars to keep them on course. 
Although it's more efficient than a single rudder, these exposed oars were more vulnerable to damage. Just before the ship reached shore, it stuck fast in a sandbar formed by the swirling waters caused by the merging of two seas. These submerged shoals, as they're called, are sometimes formed when the sands which are piled together by the action of the water come from both sides. It was invisible. Therefore, they plowed the ship into it, and the results are what is given in this verse. The bow stuck firm, but the stern began to break up in the heavy seas. I'd like us to recall that in those days, if someone oversaw a prisoner, they were in charge of their lives. Back in Acts 16, when Paul and Silas were imprisoned in Philippi, at verse 26, we read, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. God freed them, and the jailer was about to kill himself. Why was he going to do that? Because Roman law says that if a prisoner escapes your custody, you have to pay the penalty that your prisoner was due. The reason I shared that with you at this point is because of what Luke tells us next. We're now at verse 42. Now the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, some on boards, some on broken pieces of the ship, and so it was they all escaped safely to land. The present situation led the soldiers to think it would be better to kill the prisoners than risk any of them getting away. Their heartless plan shows how little regard they had for the providential escape of, from death that they had just experienced in the sea. The soldiers did not want to be held accountable, so they planned to kill the prisoners. But God was working through the centurion Julius, and Julius wanted to save Paul, so he forbid that course of action. Instead, anyone who could swim was told to make their way to shore while the others who could not swim were to use boards and broken pieces of the ship to float to shore. You know, it's all about trust. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 56 at verse 3, Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. And folks, that's one of the reasons for our Bible study. Yes, we study in depth and often we go over familiar ground. But in doing so, we meditate on God's word. And the quicker we get our words into our hearts, the quicker we will develop trust in God and his promises. They had forgotten about what Paul told them earlier. They had forgotten God's promise because they did not trust God like Paul did. Back just a few verses in chapter 27, at verse 23, we read this. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. 
Therefore take heart, men, for I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. If they had listened and believed, they would not have panicked like they did. If they believed, they would have realized that what Paul said to them earlier was true. Paul told them that the ship would have to run aground, and he told them, just as God's messenger has promised, that not a single life would be lost. Put your trust in God and his promises, folks. He has delivered you time and time again from the stormy waters of life, and he's not going to stop now. He wants you to make it to that heavenly shore. As one put it, if at any time you're stuck between the devil and the deep blue sea, then swim, Christian, swim. Keep swimming, Christian, because before too long, you will come across the old rugged cross to cling to, which was sent from heaven to take you to heaven. God kept his promise and not a single soul was lost. The journey to Rome had been interrupted by a disastrous shipwreck, Paul's fourth, by the way. But Luke would go on and in the next chapter recount the continuation of this trip, first reporting what happened during the delay on the island of Malta. In it, the finger of God is clearly visible. So Luke continues now in chapter 28, starting at verse 1. Now when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta, and the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up and suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Luke says that they discovered the island's name was Malta. The natives are descendants of the Phoenicians, and they did not speak Greek, but they did show considerable kindness to those who were shipwrecked. Luke tells us that the rain was falling and it was cold. Remember, this was late in the year. The weather was likely quite chilly. All those from the ship would have been soaked from having swum to shore. To get warm, there was a fire built, and Luke says that Paul helped to gather sticks for the fire. And when he did so, a viper made active by the heat latched onto his arm. Paul shook it off into the fire. These islanders, who were very superstitious, believed he must have truly been guilty of something since the snake bit him after he had survived the sea. When he did not die, they decided that he was a god. In reading this, we notice a strange reversal for what happened in Lystra, back in Acts 14, verse 12 and forward, where Paul was first hailed as a god and later stoned. 
The carnal man loves extremes, either worshiping himself in the person of his heroes or killing those that do not conform to his prejudices. God delivered Paul from the prisons. He delivered him from the courtrooms. He delivered him from the shipwreck. And he has delivered him again from snakebite. On the road to Damascus, we know that Jesus told Paul he had a purpose. And one of those purposes was for Paul to preach in Rome and no one and nothing, not even a snake, was going to prevent that from happening. God has a purpose for you too. And if you trust him, even though the times are difficult and there is suffering, he will deliver you time and time again until you have achieved the goal. Luke continues now at verse 7 in Acts 28. Now in that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. They also honored us in many ways. And when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. Luke tells us that the centurion and the ship's officers, along with Paul and his company, were invited to stay at the house of the chief man of the island, whose name was Publius. Publius entertained them for three days. During that time, Paul healed Publius's father of a fever and dysentery by praying and laying his hands on him. In this way, Publius's kindness was repaid. In working such a wonder, Paul verified the truth of Jesus' promise that his apostles would suffer no hurt from deadly serpents and that they should lay hands on the sick and heal them. The commentator Dumlow noticed, noted about this scripture, here we have firsthand evidence of a competent medical witness to the reality of Paul's miraculous cures. The word dysenteria, which we translate dysentery, is a medical term used by the physician Luke. Now, Paul, people, people love to contemplate miracles. And there are those who come around claiming that they can perform them. Many years ago, Oral Roberts went to Nashville, Tennessee with his miracle working campaign. The apologetic press ran a newspaper advertisement offering a $1,000 reward for medical proof of a single miracle. Roberts never sought to claim the reward. The late Ronald Coyne, a small-time healer from Oklahoma, went to Nashville claiming that he could miraculously see through a plastic eye. The apologetic press offered to pay all expenses if he would submit to testing administered by a qualified physician specializing in the study and treatment of defects and diseases of the eye. He declined the offer and he threatened to sue them. The apologetic press urged him to do so, for the courtroom is the real area for examination of evidence. Coyne took his magic eye con game and left town. Here's a small note that was written to the apologetic press. 
The miracle power of Christ was at work when my friend was healed instantly of terminal cancer, including the scar tissue from the radiation. The writer went on to say that the proof is in the pudding. Listen to the reply they gave this man. All we ask is, let us see the evidence that there was any pudding. Does the gentleman actually believe? Anyone will believe that story in the absence of any objective evidence whatsoever. Where were were there before and after x-rays that document the miracle? Is there written testimony from competent physicians regarding the instantaneous disappearance of the terminal cancer, scar tissue and all? If so, where is it? Making claims and proving them are two different things. What this gentleman had written was the words, the proof is in the pudding, and that is just shorthand, for the proof of the pudding is in the eating. That longer version makes sense at least, whereas the shortened version really doesn't mean anything. The meaning becomes clear when you know that proof here is a verb meaning test. You can claim anything, but until it is tested, it is not proved. The more common meaning of proof in our day is the noun, meaning the evidence that demonstrates a truth. Luke tells us that after seeing Paul's healing of Publius's father, others who were sick were also brought to the apostle and he healed them. No wonder they bestowed honor on Paul while he was with them and sent the whole company on their way with adequate provisions. Well, just before we finish, Luke goes on and tells us, starting at verse 11, after three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island. And landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, we circled around and reached Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew, and the next day we came to Batoli, where we found brethren, and were invited to stay with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us from as far as Appy Forum and Three Inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Now, when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Luke informs Theophilus that they set sail aboard another ship after three months, likely the worst of the winter storms were over. And their first stop was at Syracuse, and then Regium, and finally Patoli. Patoli was the main port of call for ships carrying wheat from Egypt to Rome. It's there they found brethren and stayed with them for seven days, and then they went on to Rome. Paul has finally reached his destination, and while he was in Rome, he was permitted to live with a guard by himself. When Paul headed to Rome, apparently word got around. Brethren came to greet him as far as the Appy Forum and the Three Inns. The Appy Forum, also known as the Market of Appius, was 43 miles from Rome and three ends was 10 miles closer to Rome. 
The travel of some of these saints such a distance to welcome the beloved apostle was a source of great joy. Look at Paul's reaction to the meeting of the saints. When he saw them all, he thanked God, and they gave him courage to go on. Do we do that? Do we thank God for our brothers and sisters in Christ and give them courage to go on? When Christians meet, it should be a time of thanking God because we're glad to see each other. It should be a time of encouraging each other. Did you know that encouraging is a gift from God? Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 12 at verse 6, and I'll paraphrase, we have gifts differing according to the grace that is given us. Let us use them. If it is prophesying, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. If you are a teacher in teaching, if it is to encourage, then give encouragement. He who gives, give generously. He who leads, do so with diligence. He who shows mercy, do so with cheerfulness. Folks, let us be encouraged this morning to be like Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Take a moment and look at the people around you as you go through the day and ask yourself, who can I encourage this week? And after you've identified them, then do something about it. Remember, we do not need a miracle to visit them, give them a call, send a text message, send an email, write a small note or a card or a letter with words of encouragement within it. Whatever it is you decide to do, do it knowing that you have practiced the use of the gifts you have been given. To use the phrase that was mentioned by that one writer, let us put the proof back in the pudding that we really do practice what we preach. Now, we learn from the New Testament how we are to be saved. We are to hear the word, believe in Jesus, repent of our sins, and confess that belief that Jesus is the Son of God, then be baptized for the remission of our sins. If we follow these steps, the Lord adds us to his church. If anybody needs to respond either to dedicate themselves to Christ be buried with him in baptism, and become part of the work that he has for us. Or if you need to ask prayers on your behalf, won't you come forward while we stand and sing our invitation songs?